Yeah, so I'm going, to, I'm going to try and be quite ambitious. There's a problem, it seems to me. I, I think I can probably explain the questions better than I can explain the answers. I'm not sure I really have the answers, but I can, I can try and put forward some interesting questions to you. One of them is, um, you might have the sense from looking around at life on Earth that just about anything that can happen does happen. It's out there somewhere, or if you can imagine it, it could be there, even if it's not there. There's, there's really nothing constraining um, <coughs> what genes can do, what information can do. So long as it's not actually breaking the laws of physics, you'd have the sense that anything that can happen does happen. And we now have, from genes, uh, really detailed trees which show the connectedness of different animals. So, yes, you're here. These are all animals in this part of the tree. Um, and, and, and you can step back from there, and, and this is you know, the whole tree of life which is showing the interconnectedness of different organisms. At least that's what it pretends to do. It doesn't really do that. And if you find this kind of diagram slightly freaky... Good, because I do as well, and I think most normal people would. Actually, it's, it's wrong in various ways, uh, quite interesting ways, because it's a beautiful presentation of data. Um, but it's partly wrong in that it gives the sense, being this kind of starburst shape, that every inch of space has been explored already. Um, you know, it doesn't give you the sense of the space over here that could be explored. It's the presentation style of it. The other thing which is interesting about it is down here, bacteria and archaea hardly take up any part of that tree. In fact, most variation in the tree of life is in that bit. <laughs> this is trivial. The differences between animals and plants is trivial. Really, all the variations down here. Most people are interested in plants and animals, and so that's why it's been expanded up. The other thing which is misleading about this is it's a single gene. This is not a tree of life, this is a tree of a single gene, and the sequence has been compared. And, and you, you work out you know, how closely are things related by how many sequence differences are there. And um, if you used a different gene, you'd come up with a different tree. It would look the same if you presented it that way, but if you use whole genomes, you come up with something that looks rather different. And if we kind of step back from all of that, this is a much older version, but you, you, you kind of get a much better orientation from this. This was put forward by Carl Woese um, in, in the late 1970s, and this particular version dates back to about 1990. But actually, the tree I just showed you is based on the same gene as this, and it's basically the same structure. Even though you can't see it, it's the same structure as this. There are three what are called domains. And this was a shocking discovery um, by, by Woese because look, plants and animals are, are in that small corner of the tree over there. This was another really Copernican revolution that, you know, we like to think that we're somewhat special, at least as, you know, sentient animals, perhaps we're unique. Uh, but, you know, this kind of pushes into a small corner of the tree. And actually all large plants and animals and anything that you can really see is in that small corner of the tree. And almost all the variation is over here in things you can't even see, bacteria. And this group, which you can see look the same, as bacteria, they're called archaea. We've actually known about some of them for 400 years, but we didn't realize that they're so genetically different. And so you're beginning to get a different sense of the structure of life when you look at this. And it's a, it's a cold one because it pushes us into, into a corner where we don't really like to be very much. But if you, if you try and think rationally about it, it's also an interesting one because the length of these branches gives you a, a rough guide to how much genetic variation there is in these groups. So the longer the branches, the more genetic variation there is. And so what you can see from this is the bacteria and the archaea have kind of explored the, the, the genetic space of life, the information, things that can be done, they can do them. This is why bacteria will grow on concrete or on battery acids or survive in space or whatever else. They can do almost anything you can imagine they can do. But not all of those things. Only one of those things, and a different bacteria would do something different. Uh, and so they're amazingly ingenious. They've explored all of this space, and yet in their morphology, in their appearance, they've remained over four billion years tiny and simple. They're not simple in their biochemistry, but they're simple as we look at them down a microscope. So they have explored all possible forms of information, and yet something held them back. They've remained 
small and simple and bacterial. And something different was happening down this branch of the tree of life that gave rise to all large complex organisms. Um, and nobody can agree about what that was, which I enjoy telling my students because it's a problem for them. I can highlight where the answer might lie. But I, I, I like to tell, you know, I, I like to try and get this across to the public as much as possible as well, because we, we live in a managerial age where we try and say what the solution is going to be, and then we do the research to get to the solution. That's not how science works. Um, the fact is, we really don't know a great deal about why life evolved the way it actually did. And I also find it encouraging that some of the greatest biologists and the greatest thinkers of the 20th century can't agree among themselves either. Uh, so, Jacques Monod wrote a famous book called Chance and Necessity in 1971. It's a wonderful book, really at the dawn of molecular biology when people just understood what the genetic code was and, 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 and the fact that it was a, a strange, random kind of code. Um, and, and it's a fairly bleak book. It's, he thought we were alone in an empty universe. It's really French existentialism at its bleakest. Uh, and then there was Stephen Jay Gould, who wrote a, a wonderful book called Wonderful Life, uh, which kind of winds back the clock to the time of the Cambrian explosion when we first see fossil animals in, in, in the fossil record, um, and said, well, what would happen if you were to kind of wind back there and then allow it to play forward again? Would we end up with, with mammals? Would we end up with vertebrates? Or would we end up with weird things that, you, you know, would we have terrestrial octopuses, intelligent octopuses on land? Or, I don't know. What would you get? Uh, and his view was, was really that the trajectory of evolution is essentially um, what he called contingent, which is to say it fills space as it can, and that there isn't a kind of structure to evolution, that if you wound back the clock and let it run forward again, you'd end up with something completely different, completely unpredictable. On the other side of this, uh, of, of this divide here, we have Christian de Duve and Simon Conway Morris, who was actually the, one of the heroes of... Uh, of uh, Wonderful Life, of Stephen Jay Gould's book, but thinks very, very differently about evolution. He thinks in terms of convergent evolution, that if you wind back the clock and let it play forwards again, you'll end up with humans again, and they're going to end up with, with, with you know, <laughs> hands with four fingers and, the, and opposable thumbs and so on. I don't know who's right. Um, I suspect it's probably in between the two, but how do you begin to ask those questions? De Duve, as well, thinks that effectively life is inevitable, that any planet which is a wet, rocky planet will seed life, which will evolve towards greater complexity and something approximating to the complexity of humans. It's only a matter of time. So they can't agree, and they're some of the greatest thinkers around, and I find that's a very pleasant place to be because it allows me to really come from where I want to. This is my take on the tree of life from the point of view of a bacterium. Uh, we start four billion years ago when we see the first fossils of bacteria. Uh, and they're equivocal. Are they really fossil bacteria? They look a lot like bacteria, but you could argue all afternoon about whether they really are or whether they're just funny shapes in the rock that look like bacteria. But there's quite a lot of evidence that suggests that there were things that were basically bacteria four billion years ago. And it's basically because they look an awful lot like bacteria today. So they've had four billion years and they haven't really changed. They've been flatlining this whole time, um, except for one moment when we see fairly abrupt appearance of complex life. I'm not talking about the Cambrian explosion here. I'm talking about probably a billion years before the Cambrian explosion where we suddenly see large cells. They're called eukaryotic cells. Um, so plants, animals, fungi, but also things like amoeba uh, are eukaryotes. So a lot of a lot of the variation within the eukaryotic part of the tree is at the level of single-celled algae and fungi and so on. And they apparently arose just once in four billion years. And I will talk about why that might be the case. And towards the end, I shall give a possible suggestion as to, as, as to why it might be the case. But um, the questions that I'd like to address are what kind of forces constrain the evolution of bacteria? They appear to be constrained by something. It's not information, it's something else. It's something perhaps to do with the structure of cells. How did complex eukaryotic cells escape from that um, just once? And can we say anything from looking at life on Earth about how life might be on other planets as well? I think we probably can. 
So really, I think perhaps the intellectual godfather of any questions about what life is, is Erwin Schrodinger, the great physicist who wrote a famous book 75 years ago this year, in fact, um, called What is Life? And uh, really, there were two questions that he framed in that book. One of them is very familiar to most people. Uh, it's, he was the first person who talked about information, really, in biology. He referred to the genome uh, as a code script. Uh, he didn't know what it was. He didn't know it was even DNA. He thought it was proteins. But he talked about um, a code script encoding the entire pattern of an individual's future development and its functioning in the mature state. So it was genes that he really was, was referring to, even though he didn't know what they were at the time. And his book was a direct inspiration to Watson and Crick and Rosalind Franklin uh, and, and, and the discovery of the DNA double helix. Um, the other thing he talked about, though, was energy, or specifically entropy, or what he called negative entropy, or neg-entropy, um, which is really a measure of disorder. Um, and, and, you know, obviously living cells are, appear at least to be a pretty ordered state. Uh, and so he wondered, well, how do they get to be ordered? And he realized that the genes control the order in some way, but how do they do it? In the broadest terms, he said, well, cells are continually sucking order from the environment, which to a biologist today is a very peculiar way of seeing the question. But he had a footnote which helped me to understand what he was talking about. He said, if I'd been catering for physicists alone, I should have let the discussion turn on free energy instead. Now, free energy just means energy which, is, which can do work. So it's not just heating up the environment or something. It, it, it can physically power the kind of contractions of muscles or all kinds of things at the level of cells where your enzymes are operating and, um, and doing a continuous powered job. So really he's saying that the, the, the essence of biology is information and energy flow. That's uh, putting it in, in, in more modern terms. Um, and energy flow, you know, everybody has been obsessed with genes ever since, uh, ever since Watson and Crick, understandably so, and they provide a tremendous power of insight into biology, but they don't provide necessarily all the answers. As I showed you with the tree of life, something else is constraining what evolution can do, which is not just in information alone. Um, so how do cells actually work in terms of their energy? These are mitochondria. So mitochondria, as we'll hear later on, they were bacteria once, uh, and we have thousands of them in our own cells. So all together in the human body, um, in the order of, uh, well, uh, hundreds if not thousands of trillions, whatever that number works out at, millions of billions. Um, these are the, the, what's called the Christie membranes. So this is where respiration is taking place. So when we're burning food in oxygen, it's happening in these membranes deep down inside cells. And these are, uh, you know, around about... Um, a thousand, they're one, about one micron in diameter, and a micron is a thousandth of a millimeter. So, this is what's happening. We're stripping electrons from food, and we're passing them to oxygen. So we have a current of electrons passing down, this is the membrane, so this is my a cheap cartoon attempt at drawing one of the Christie membranes. It's a barrier, anyway, and it's insulated, and there are various large complex proteins sitting in this, and they're passing these electrons down, hopping down uh, from center to center within these proteins. We have what amounts to an electrical current, which is flowing from food to oxygen. And that electrical current is powering the extrusion. These proteins are pumping protons. So protons are the charged nuclei of hydrogen atoms, so they're, they're very small particles across this membrane. And we end up with what amounts to a reservoir of protons on one side of the membrane. And this is a, a kind of a turbine which is generating energy for cells. It's called the ATP synthase. So the situation as a whole, really, it's, it's very much like um, a hydroelectric dam. It's, in, in concept, it's, it's very similar. So the protons are equivalent to the, the reservoir itself. The membrane is equivalent to the dam. And the turbine, the electrical turbine, is equivalent to one of these proteins, like this. This is the ATP synthase. And it is one of the most mesmerizing, <laughs> unbelievable proteins, really. I mean, it, you, it, it, it is a rotating motor. 
Uh, and when you start to wonder about how this kind of machinery evolved in the first place, it does your head in. Um, it, it's a marvelous thing. Um, and I do worry about how these things arose in the first place, and I'm going to try and give you some sense of how it might have happened, not specifically for this protein, but the context in which, in which it might have arisen. But this is the ATP synthase. This is the turbine which is driving. So ATP, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, is, is usually called the universal energy currency. You can think of it as a kind of coin that goes in a slot machine, and the slot machine does its, its thing. It's, like, it's an enzyme. It does a particular job. You put the coin in, it does its job. You put another coin in, it does its job again. So this is how cells work. They're powered by machines uh, using, using effectively the, the currency, the ATP. So this idea that it's kind of like a hydroelectric power scheme uh, came from one of the most brilliant and eccentric Englishmen of the 20th century scientists, uh, Peter Mitchell. Um, and he put these ideas forward initially in 1961. Um, this is somewhat before that. That's a, a, in the late 1940s when he was in Cambridge with Jennifer Moyle, who uh, was a, a lifelong collaborator. She was, in fact, a, a brilliant experimentalist. Mitchell was uh, a brilliant thinker. And, and rather cack-handed in the lab, I'm told. Uh, and so it was Jennifer Moyle who really did all the experiments and Mitchell who did a lot of the thinking. And, and, and Moyle herself was, was brilliant. Uh, she was uh, one of the first women to get a... Actually, she was not awarded a degree in Cambridge. They didn't award degrees to women in the 1940s. Uh, but an equivalent, I don't recall what the term is. She had been... Um, she had been involved in cracking codes in the war and had been head of some division, which, again, was very unusual for a woman to be in that position at that time. Uh, the Nobel Prize went to Mitchell uh, in the end by himself. There's always arguments about how these things should be apportioned. Um, I don't know enough about it, but I think if it were today, it would have gone to both of them. Uh, and science is really about experiments as much as it is about thinking. It's the co combination of the two. If it hadn't been for her experiments, Mitchell's ideas would have really come to nothing. Anyway, but Mitchell was a great thinker, and he came at these questions about how uh, cell respiration works from thinking about bacteria. His real question on bacteria was, how, how do they keep their insides different to their outsides? It's a very simple, basic question, and one of those great questions that takes decades to answer. And he, <clears throat> he gave a talk in Moscow in 1957 on the origin of life. There was a whole conference on the origin of life. Uh, and, and a lot of the people who were interested in that kind of question at the time uh, were, were there. So J.D. Bernal and J.B.S. Haldane, they're all communists, actually. Um, and they all went to Moscow. And, you know, they were interested in Moscow in a materialist explanation for the world, which is why a lot of the people who were working on those questions shared this materialist conception. Mitchell was there, and he was far from being a materialist. He was quite kind of almost spiritualist in his, in his outlook. But he said, I cannot consider the organism without its environment. From a formal point of view, the two may be regarded as equivalent phases between which dynamic contact is maintained by the membranes that separate and link them. Now, virtually every definition of life that you will ever see is going to say, this is what an organism is, and the environment is something different. And Mitchell really here is saying that the environment and the organism are two equivalent phases separated by a membrane. It's a very different perception of what life is. Uh, and, and if you're thinking about the origin of life, and you're beginning to think about compartments and phases and things, this kind of conception makes, to me, a lot more sense. So it's not a satisfying definition of life, but it certainly gives you a different perspective that the, on opposite sides of a membrane, which is a millionth of a millimeter in thickness, um, you have two phases. One is the inside of the cell, the other is the outside of the cell. They are different, and the only way they can be different is if you're actively pumping things out or bringing things in, and that costs energy. So <clears throat> how did the first cells do it? Well, you can see it. Um, <laughs> the, the, the clue is in methane. So the, the cows produce massive amounts of methane, they do it because they harbor particular types of archaea, so this representative of this domain of life called methanogens. Uh, we all have methanogens as well, especially those of you who can light your own farts. Um, so, so these are methanogens. 
And what they're doing is, is they're, they're taking carbon dioxide and hydrogen and reacting them together to make methane. And they're getting all the energy and all the carbon that they need to grow from that reaction alone. So the methane is the waste product, and it's just uh, far to doubt, I suppose. Um, but you'll all probably be aware that if, you, if we could make hydrogen and CO2 react easily, we could solve a lot of problems in the world. So we already can split water. We can effectively mimic photosynthesis, split water to produce hydrogen and oxygen, which is what photosynthesis does. We can forget about the oxygen or react it directly with the hydrogen, but nobody's particularly interested in the hydrogen economy. It's a difficult thing to do. If you could react the hydrogen with CO2 and make synthetic gasoline, that would solve a lot of problems. You can strip the CO2 out of the atmosphere or at least remain a neutral state. And you can make you know, the entire plastics industry and all the energy and so on can, 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 can be done from this reaction. I, to my knowledge, nobody has succeeded in doing it in an economic way. Perhaps they have and they're not telling us. Um, but the cells, these methanogens, they grow from that without any energy input at all. Uh, so they can make it work economically. And it's interesting to wonder how they do it. Well, the way they actually do it is they need a proton gradient across the membrane. That's to say they're doing exactly the same thing that we do in our mitochondria. They're pumping protons across a membrane. So on one side, they've got a high proton concentration. The other side, they don't. Um, and they use that not to make ATP. They do use it to make ATP. But more importantly, they use it to power the reaction between hydrogen and carbon dioxide. And this is roughly what the issue is. Don't worry about this. If it's going uphill, you have to put energy in. If it's going downhill, you're getting energy out. That's really all you need to take home from this. But there's, there's two lines on there. And right at the top, you can see it says HCHO. That's formaldehyde. So to go from carbon dioxide to methane, you have to put energy in for the first couple of steps to get up to formaldehyde. Uh, and then it's energetically downhill all the way. So how do the, and that's the problem, Those, that uphill bit is the difficulty with making hydrogen react with CO2. There's a barrier to their reaction, an energetic barrier. Um, and what the methanogens do is they lower that barrier and they lower it by using a proton gradient. Uh, so how do they actually do it? Well, to think about it is a very good way to think about the origin of life. Because these same conditions, you find them in a particular type of hydrothermal vent. We see natural proton gradients, barriers between compartments, lots of hydrogen gas, and CO2. And those cells live in that kind of environment even today. And so you can begin to think, well, how would, how would the structure of this environment begin to help? Uh, and it gives us an insight into how they might do it, and also how we might do it. So this particular type of vent were only discovered about 10, you know, 15 years ago or so. Um, they don't look much, let me just go back to that, they don't look much like the familiar black smokers that most people have seen belching black smoke out of the top. Um, you, I suppose you could call them white non-smokers. There's no smoke coming out, and they're, they're, they're carbonate rocks, limestone rocks, really, aragonite, in fact. Um, but they are very active. And there's no, there's no animal life around it in particular. There are a few fish every now and then, but, but they're full of bacteria and archaea and the kind of cells that live there. Um, and, and this kind of environment, we're fairly sure, would have existed on the early Earth as well. So the black smokers we're not so certain about, but these, these type of vents would certainly have been present uh, four billion years ago on the early Earth. And they were first pointed out by this guy, Mike Russell, um, who's a kind of mad geologist, um, he's, uh, he's a, a brilliant scientist, but he enjoys winding people up, I think. Um, and, and some of his ideas, you know, the, the origin of life is a really fractured field. And people come in from the background with chemistry, for example, or a background of geology, or a background of biology, or a background of genetics. Or, you know, people come from very different places and converge on these questions about the origin of life. So it's not surprising that we don't agree with each other very much. Uh, often we don't even speak the same language. 
And I think most people are trying to learn to speak the same language, but we can't agree even then what the real question is, because it's a long way to go from simple chemical reactions to a replicating cell with all of this machinery. Which bit are you going to focus on? Uh, you know, we, we're all interested in different aspects of really different problems, uh, all of which goes under this term origin of life. So Mike Russell was talking about these kind of events 10 years before they were actually discovered. Um, and, and the language he used was the language of geochemistry. Uh, and it was really a, an unfamiliar language to most chemists working on the subject uh, or to the biologists. And, uh, you know, I struggled a lot with his terms to begin with. Um, and then they discovered, um, Deb Kelly, in fact, discovered this lost city vent that I just showed you the picture of. Uh, ten years after he'd been talking about these vents as the best setting for the origin of life. And suddenly he became famous. Almost overnight he became famous. And this was a, uh, a Photoshop job that Nature did. So Nature is one of the great science journals. Um, and they had a feature article on, on, on Mike's work and, and dressed him up as Erasmus, as the Renaissance man. Uh, and they called him Naissance man. Naissance as in the birth of life. Um, and they've got, he, he, he built a reactor at uh, NASA, JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, uh, to try and study these conditions. Uh, and here's a little bit of Lost City Vent in the background. He made a number of predictions as to what the important conditions were. And the, the key ones, really, is that they should be very rich in hydrogen gas, which is true, um, and that there should be the walls of the ancient vents, not the modern ones, but the ancient ones should have contained catalytic iron-sulfur minerals, that also seems to be true. But the main point that he, he was talking about is there were natural proton gradients. Because you have alkaline fluids, which are really don't have many protons, they're deficient in protons, and a relatively acidic early ocean, lots of carbon dioxide, full of protons. And so the two were mingling in, in, inside these vents, uh, and you would have very steep proton gradients within the vents. We don't really know how steep. We don't know a great deal about these vents, uh, but you can at least imagine um, how it might work. Essentially what the methanogens are doing and how, in, in essence, uh, the, the proton concentration changes the reactivity of both hydrogen and CO2. In alkaline fluids, hydrogen is more reactive. It wants to offload its electrons onto something else. And in acidic conditions, CO2 is more reactive. It's going to accept the electrons because it can accept protons to balance the charges as well. And so in, if you've got two channels next to each other, the, the CO2 in acid conditions is going to be more receptive to picking up uh, electrons and protons and becoming an organic molecule. And if you have hydrogen in an alkaline channel, it really wants to be rid of its electrons um, and, uh, and the protons will react with the hydroxide ions to make water, which is thermodynamically very favored. But if they mix, then, of course, you, you've lost that. You've lost the structure. You've lost the barrier. You don't, you don't have a pH difference anymore, and so you, you've lost everything. It's the structure that really matters. And it's the structure that we have here. And these minerals that we think you would have found in these ancient vents and which you find today in methanogens are the iron-sulfur minerals. And they're semiconducting. So you could imagine, at least, that the hydrogen would pass electrons onto this barrier and across the barrier onto CO2, and that it's equivalent to a cell membrane, and it's the same structure as a cell membrane, and this is how methanogens might do it. Well, you could call that a wild bit of imagination, or you could call it a hypothesis. Uh, a, a hypothesis, I think Peter Medower said, is a, is, a, is, a, is a rash leap into the unknown, but at least it's testable. That's what makes it science. Uh, and so we built a little reactor. Uh, it's a very uh, uh, humble reactor, really, and it doesn't work very well. Uh, but we've, we've been playing with this for, for a few years now, and we've decided that we need to build a better one. <laughs> we, we need to make it smaller. We're actually now building a microfluidic version of this. But I'm only showing you this version um, for two reasons. One of them, we can precipitate the right kind of minerals inside these little vent structures here. And the second one is... We're trying to simulate the conditions where we have hydrogen in alkaline fluids on the inside with a semiconducting barrier and CO2 in acidic fluids on the other side, and that that should um, drive the formation of organic matter. 
And this is formaldehyde, which is the top of that curve that I showed you a few minutes ago. This is the hard point, so we're not especially interested in formaldehyde, but if you can make that, you can make anything. Uh, and, and, and this is only two hours. So under those conditions, we're seeing a substantial rise in formaldehyde. The trouble with this is trying to keep the conditions under any form of control, and so we're trying to, trying to do it better. Uh, we've not even published that yet. So I'm not going to talk about that, but I, 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 I'd like to think what are the consequences if, big if, what I'm telling you is true, um, that life started in these hydrothermal vents. And they started there because the structure of these vents favors the reaction between hydrogen and CO2, the proton gradients across membranes or across barriers, because that's still how cells work. And cells now get their hydrogen from almost anywhere. So in photosynthesis, it splits water and the hydrogen is extracted from water. And it's cobbled onto CO2 to make organic molecules. But the basic reaction is hydrogen reacting with CO2. In, in oxygenic photosynthesis, where the waste product is oxygen. But there's other types of photosynthesis. You can use hydrogen sulfide as, as an electron donor. You take the hydrogen out of it, you leave the sulfur behind, you cobble it on to CO2. Or you're growing like a methanogen in the vent. The hydrogen is bubbling out of the ground, you simply cobble it onto CO2. Life all across Earth is based on the reaction between hydrogen and CO2. And, and, you know, we go around eating things, but we're, we're entirely dependent on the primary producers, the plants and the bacteria, which are basically reacting hydrogen with CO2. And hydrogen and CO2 don't react except under these rather, these rather careful conditions where you have structure, the same kind of structure that we see in cells. So how common are those conditions likely to be? On the early Earth, we think that they would have been basically all the way across the seafloor. Um, because it's a reaction between rock and water. So this is, um, this, if you imagine this is the seafloor, and then down beneath in the crust underneath the seafloor, these green rocks here uh, are rich in minerals like olivine. So olivine is iron, magnesium rich rock, mostly found in the mantle of the Earth today, which is why you don't see so many reactions like this anymore. But Four billion years ago, there wasn't really such a difference between the mantle and the crust, and so we think these reactions would happen almost everywhere. The water percolates down to depths of five or six kilometers beneath the crust uh, and will react with these rocks. So if you were to take a, a lump of olivine and put it in a bucket of water, uh, you'd probably get one bubble in about a week's time. It's not, something, you know, it's not an experiment you want to do for the kids. Um, but at the higher temperatures and pressures down at the bottom of the seafloor, it really is bubbling with, with hydrogen gas. It's a pretty vigorous reaction. Um, and that's really all it takes. It's the reaction between water and rock uh, to produce strongly alkaline fluids rich in hydrogen gas. It's an exothermic reaction, which means it's producing heat, and so the, these are buoyant, warm fluids which percolate back up. Uh, and when they get to the seafloor, they react with the, the waters of the ocean, the minerals in the, in the ocean, to precipitate as these vents. So the reaction between rock and water is down below the seafloor, but the vents themselves are up at the seafloor. So they should happen on any wet, rocky planet. Um, and there's actually quite a lot of uh, lovely suggestions from across our own solar system that they do happen. Um, so Mars, uh, there's, there's traces of methane, thought to be traces of methane on Mars. Where does it come from? Uh, the wishful thinkers hope it comes from life. It's possible it does. Um, but it's more likely that it comes from exactly this same process of rocks reacting with water. There is water on Mars still, uh, mostly frozen and mostly beneath the surface. Um, but you're likely to produce hydrogen and methane for exactly the same reasons. And we see on Enceladus, for example, or Europa, which are uh, moons, icy moons, uh, with frozen oceans. But underneath the frozen ocean on Enceladus and on Europa, um, it seems that there is a rather large ocean, larger than the Earth's oceans. Um, and these plumes that you can see here uh, are escaping from the surface of Enceladus. And they are very alkaline, pH 10 or thereabouts, and rich in hydrogen gas and methane. Um, and so the only thing that we know of, the only geological process we know of that could produce an ocean that was that alkaline and that rich in hydrogen would be this same process. It's called serpentinization. 
but it's the reaction between olivine and water to produce a mineral called serpentinite, which is why it's called serpentinization. So even in our own solar system, there are at least three worlds where this process is actively going on. Um, and, and this is really one of the places that NASA would most like to go to. Uh, me too. Um, and it, it, it actually also means, because of the politics of these situations, I said nobody can agree about where life actually started on Earth or what conditions. So I'm giving you my partial view. NASA liked this partial view because NASA wanted to fly rockets to Enceladus, and they need a reason why they would want to do that, a reason that they can give, <laughs> I suppose, rather than we just like flying rockets. Um, and that's, there may be life on Enceladus. But that means that these reasons, these, these ideas on the origin of life, talking about serpentinization and hydrogen and these particular reactions, is appealing at the moment to NASA. Uh, I hope that means they might fund me, but you know, <laughs> probably not. Anyway, so that's, um, that's, within our own, that's within our own solar system. If we go further afield, um, there's been a real a real um, drive to discover exoplanets, planets circulating, uh, sorry, orbiting distant stars. Uh, and, you know, there have been projections now that there should be something in the order of tens of billions of Earth-like wet rocky planets in, uh, in the Milky Way alone. So if that's true, um, all of these Earth-like wet rocky planets should be producing the same kind of vents. Water is basically ubiquitous. <coughs> olivine is, is, we can detect olivine in interstellar dust. It, it's, again, it's very, very common. So most rocky planets would have a certain amount of, fair amount of olivine in them. And CO2, again, is common as a, a, as a gas, an atmospheric gas, uh, it's, it's certainly in our own solar system. So you could imagine that these same conditions would apply really on a very, very wide <coughs> scale. And so... Life starting elsewhere may be constrained by the same reasons. It may also require proton gradients across membranes to get going because the reaction between hydrogen and CO2 is difficult, and this is a, a, a probably, probabilistically simple way of doing it. So if you were to find, say, a 1,000 uh, life forms in the universe, uh, you know, would it be carbon-based or not? Um, probably it would mostly be carbon-based because carbon is ubiquitous. It's extremely good at the kind of complex chemistry that needs to be done. Uh, and it comes in a convenient Lego brick, CO2. So you can build large complex molecules by adding on one brick at a time. If you start with silicon, you're starting with silicon oxide, sand. You know, don't try and build with sand. You want to build with Lego. So, uh, and carbon dioxide is a Lego brick. And so if you were to find a 1,000 different life forms, I, I would wager a bet that it's going to be carbon-based, let's say 995 times out of 1,000, and something wild and funky perhaps the rest of the times. But carbon is so common, so good at what it does, and so convenient in the forms in which it comes that it would be very surprising if it wasn't carbon-based. But then we've already run into this constraint. How do you make carbon dioxide react with CO2? I would say we're likely to find bacteria um, many places throughout the universe. But what about more complex things than bacteria? I don't know how many people in this room would get very excited if there were bacteria discovered on Mars. Uh, most scientists probably would get pretty excited about that. Um, I, I don't... I, I really honestly... I, I, can, we, can we have a show of hands just out of curiosity? How many people here would be excited to find bacteria on another planet? Pretty much all of you. Great. <laughs> um, would we find anything more complex than bacteria? We need to look back, though, and I've established what I'm suggesting is a set of constraints, that cells anywhere are going to be based on reacting hydrogen with CO2, and to do it, they're going to need proton gradients across membranes. Um, and bacteria have remained constrained and haven't changed for 4 billion years in their morphology, neither have archaea. So could it be that they are constrained by uh, the way that they generate their energy? Well, I think that's probably the case. And it really is. Uh, John Maynard Smith was one of the great evolutionary biologists of the 20th century, and he was at UCL for a period uh, where I am, so I'm, 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 
I think a lot of, well, it's, it's, a great, uh, it's a great place, UCL, in, 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 at least in one sense, in the sense that some of the greatest thinkers and biologists of the 20th century worked there for a while. They all left and went to Cambridge or somewhere after a bit, but <laughs> for a while they were all there at UCL. And, 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 and I think a lot of us walk around these corridors and think, oh, JVS Haldane used to walk down here. I'd better do something good today. Um, so Maynard Smith was one of the great evolutionary biologists of the 20th century. And he liked calling things that shouldn't happen an evolutionary scandal. He was scandalized by sex. Sex really shouldn't happen. Uh, why would people not just make clones of themselves instead? And he spent a lot of his career trying to work out why sex does happen uh, and why most things that make clones of themselves just fall extinct after a period. And I'd like to think he never actually said that the, the eukaryotes were, were an evolutionary scandal, but I think he would have seen it in those terms. Um, the problem is that all complex life is composed of this one cell type, this eukaryotic cell. Um, and we know, I mean, the fact that we all obviously share a common ancestor because the plants and the animals, if you look at their cells under a microscope, they're almost indistinguishable in the sense that they all have a nucleus. They all have lots of membrane systems called the endoplasmic reticulum, for example, or lysosomes. They all have mitochondria. They, you, know, you could write page after page in a textbook of things that plants and animals have in common at the level of cells. But fungi have the same things in common as well, and so does an amoeba or um, single-celled algae and so on. It's a shockingly long list, and it's quite baffling as to why that would be the case. So traits like sex as well. You know, lots of, lots of amoeba, in fact, pretty much all of them, uh, are sexual, it turns out. Uh, for a long time, we assumed they weren't because you never really caught two of them together. Um, but, but, but now we know their genomes. Funnily enough, it's the genomes that give insight into these things. We can see that all the genes that are required for meiosis, which is to say the, the, the recombination part of, of sex and the cell division, we find them all in amoeba. We find them all in very ancient-looking cells. Um, and, and there's plenty of evidence, again, from the genomes that they've been recombining genes and changing the structure of the genome continuously. So we know that they're sexual, even if we've never caught them at it. So this is the scandal, then. Um, all eukaryotic shells, cells share this long list of traits. Bacteria and archaea just don't do it. Um, they don't do sex, for example. They, they pass genes around a bit. They do some recombination, but they don't fuse cells together, line up whole genomes, cross across genes, and then separate up. And uh, you know, they, Bacteria just don't do that. So the scandal, if all of these traits, and there's hundreds and hundreds of them, evolve by natural selection, step by step, and there's no reason to imagine that that didn't happen. Um, and each of these small steps offered some kind of an advantage and again, there's no reason to assume that that's not true, then why is it that none of them evolve in the bacteria or the archaea for the same reasons? They really ought to, but they don't. So you could think of eyes as a nice example. Lots of creationists say, what use is half an eye? But you know, evolution is full of things that most people would say was half an eye. Um, and, and, and it's exactly as natural selection would predict. There are at least 60 or 70 separate origins of morphologically complex eyes. That's not quite true, as I'm putting it, because a lot of them in, in animals share a common ancestor on some kind of a worm that had a light-sensitive spot. But it's partly true in the sense that uh, the octopus eye, for example, that's over here somewhere, and the, the human eye... Um, uh, have arrived with a camera eye essentially independently. It's convergent evolution. They started from a light-sensitive spot, and independently they ended up with a camera-type eye. Um, there are one or two regulatory genes in common, but they independently recruited all the rest of the genes. But then there are things... This is, this is Eudlina, an alga. It's got an eye spot. It's got the, the same proteins, uh, light-sensitive proteins, rhodopsins, in that eye spot that we have in our own eyes. Um, this is even more amazing. This is a camera-type eye. which You can see the lens, you can see the retina, you can see a cornea. That's in a single cell. That's a single protist, eukaryotic protist. The retina is composed of chloroplasts, <coughs> just reused for a different purpose. 
The lens, I'm not sure what the lens is made of, but the cornea is made of mitochondria. Again, they've just been cobbled together and used for a different purpose, but it's a camera eye inside a single cell. So you know, my point is this is what natural selection will predict, that there should be multiple different types of eye in different environments, different ecological contexts, uh, different types of eye with different functioning, um, and, and we don't see the evolutionary intermediates, but we see ecologically all the different types. And so we would expect to see something similar in bacteria. We would expect to see some bacteria that have something that's a bit like a nucleus, or some that do something a bit like sex, or that, that can do phagocytosis, go around and engulf cells and eat them. You know, it's, these are all valuable traits for us, so why don't the bacteria do it? It's not like the eye. There's a, there's a big difference there in what we see around us. So it really boils down to this question that I raised earlier on. What was happening down this branch of the tree of life that wasn't happening over here? And it's not to do with information because these guys trawled through all the information uh, and, and still didn't come up with the answer. And I want to make the point that it's not at the level of um, large plants and animals. The, the real difference, the real void, is at the level of single cells. So this is a bog-standard alga, the kind of thing you'd find in any pond uh, in, in, in London or anywhere else, uh, Euglena. And over here is a, a relatively complex bacterium. Uh, it's actually even got a little compartment inside it, which some people have said is a bit like a nucleus. It's not really. Um, the reason you can't see it well is it's roughly to scale. Uh, and, and so you don't need to know what most of these things are in here to realize that this is a lot bigger. Uh, and, and more complicated. So these are the mitochondria. This is actually a chloroplast. You can see the nucleus there. But it's just, you know, it's on a different scale. Uh, the level of complexity in a single cell has gone up by orders of magnitude compared to a relatively complex bacterium. Not in the biochemistry, but in, the, in this morphological complexity. And it's kind of interesting that if you were to compare two different eukaryotic cells, they look rather similar. So... So this is paramecium, which is a single-celled protist, and this is a pancreatic uh, acinar cell, uh, a human one. Um, again, they're roughly to the same scale, and you know, most people would look at them and say, well, they're, they're kind of similar. <laughs> in terms of the amount of complexity going on in them, they're not a world apart. Um, but this is a single-cell protist, and this is part of a multicellular organism. And it's out of curiosity, anyone got any idea how many genes... By genes, I mean protein-coding genes paramecium has. Any thoughts? Twice the amount of humans. Exactly, twice the amount of humans, 40,000 genes. Uh, now, maybe we do lots of additional regulation, or maybe we're just not very much more complicated than paramecium. But the point is, in, by most objective measures of complexity, there's not a great world of difference between these two types of cell in terms of the number of genes, in terms of the amount of morphological complexity, uh, in terms of the, basically the hard wiring of it, uh, the real difference is between bacteria and single-celled eukaryotes rather than between single-celled eukaryotes and, and, and large multicellular organisms. So I'm going to have to, <coughs> rather than exploring all the possible options, I'm going to tell you what I think the answer is. Um, otherwise, we, don't have, we could be here all the rest of the week. Um, Here's a group of cells that are pretty simple as eukaryotes go. This is Jardia. Jardia causes explosive diarrhea that anybody who's been walking in the mountains in America may have had Jardia uh, poisoning. Um, I never had it, but I, I, I used to, when I used to go walking in the mountains in places like that, I used to be terrified that when I drank from the mountain streams, I would get it. Um, <clears throat> but it doesn't have any mitochondria. And people thought it didn't do sex either until quite recently when it turns out it is sexual. And it turns out that it does have mitochondria too, just not as we know them. Uh, it has uh, uh, organelles which derive from mitochondria <coughs> called mitosomes. Took, this is a, a typical of science as well. It, it took 25 years of probably about at least 15 research groups around the world um, not just with Jardia, but with, with these others as well, Microsporidia, Trichomonas, Entamoeba, Monocircuminoides. These are uh, cells that don't have mitochondria. Uh, and for a long time, they were thought to be a kind of an evolutionary intermediate, a living fossil from very early in eukaryotic evolution that were given insight into how complex cells evolved. 
Well, it turns out they're not. They're all derived. They all had more, rather far more complex ancestors in the past, and they, they um, kind of evolved down in complexity to become more like bacteria. Um, and, and so they all have mitochondria, and it took 25 years of these research groups around the world to, to nail that. The reason it was done, in part, is because half of them are parasites, and so they're of medical interest. And as soon as things become of medical interest, then people are going to fund you. If, if people went to the funders and said, these are really interesting living fossils that might give us an insight into the early evolution of complexity, uh, you know, they're not going to get funded, unfortunately. If you say it causes explosive diarrhea, <laughs> where's the checkbook? Um, so, so that's what they said. They said it causes explosive diarrhea, and they... They had 20 years of funding, and they spent it very wisely on the early evolution of complexity. Uh, and we now know that these are uh, actually not living fossils, but highly derived. Uh, and the one thing that we can take away from it is they all had mitochondria in the past. And that's important. It's important in part because mitochondria, as I said at the beginning, uh, were bacteria once. And this was uh, made famous by Lynn Margulis, Margulis, I should say. Uh, she, she died of a stroke a couple of years ago. I only met her once. Uh, and, and, and I admired her enormously, but, uh, but, but she had a knack of disagreeing with everybody about everything, uh, including me. Yes, well, that man is... <laughs> she was married to Carl Sagan, um, and they, they divorced after a while. They, after, before she wrote her famous paper in 1967, they'd already divorced. I'd love to have heard their breakfast uh, conversations between those two. But anyway, she was the person who really nailed the idea that mitochondria were bacteria once. She nailed the idea that chloroplasts derived from bacteria as well. And she also argued for a long time that there were lots of other uh, symbioses, uh, for example, with spirochetes bacteria giving rise to the cytoskeleton and the flagella and so on. Nobody agrees with her about that. Um, and she was, she was, you know, she was very strong-willed and disagreed with most people about most things. But she was bang on for these central ideas on the origin of the eukaryotic cell. Uh, and the amount of, uh, I suppose you call it hate mail now, that she got, if you read the literature from after her paper in 1967 uh, through into the early 70s, people did not like these ideas at all. And, and, and they wrote really unpleasant diatribes in the literature. Um, you can understand why she became very hardened to abuse and eventually basically believed everybody else was wrong apart from her. She was asked once, why, uh, why, why is she, does she enjoy being so controversial? And her answer was, I don't think I'm controversial, I think I'm right. <laughs> I'm not even sure she used the word think. <laughs> So, so that's Lynn Margulis, and she nailed that, uh, that, 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 that mitochondria derived from bacteria. And we still can't really agree about exactly which kind of bacteria were they, but probably something like Rhodobacter that we're, we're seeing there. So something acquired these bacteria that went on to become the mitochondria. And, and again, there's been no agreement about what kind of a cell that was until quite recently. Uh, and this is, um, this is a place called Loki's Castle, which is just off the coast of Norway, um, and, uh, and a Swedish group had been trawling around in the muds underneath there to, and sequencing everything that they found in those muds. So we've never even now seen what these cells actually look like. This is what's called metagenomic reconstruction. So you, you sequence everything, and you try and piece together genomes by effectively matching the ends up, uh, and eventually you, you, you put together the genome of these cells. There's a certain amount of debate about whether there's contamination in there, but it looks broadly true. And the thing which is really surprising about it is eukaryotes are here. This is another tree. And right next to them, to all these... So we started out with a Loki archaeota. They were discovered at Loki's castle. Uh, and, and since then, various others have been found, and they've kept going with this Norse theme. So now we've got all the Norse gods down there. We've got the Odin archaeota and the Thor archaeota and the Heimdall archaeota and so on. Um, but the thing which is really plain is that eukaryotes are branching right in the middle of those groups. So whatever the host cell was that acquired mitochondria, it was something pretty similar to this. And the irony is we don't know what this looks like. We don't know what kind of a cell it was. Some people say it was a primitive phagocyte that kind of tried to eat things. Uh, other people, including me, 
say, oh, no, it wasn't. It was an autotroph. It, it used hydrogen gas. I don't think we can really be very sure yet what kind of a cell it was. But it was probably basically a fairly simple cell. Um, and so this is, a, this is another tree which I think is beautiful. This is from one of the most, I think, brilliant biologists um, operating today, a guy called Bill Martin. He also has a knack of, uh, of winding people up. Um, and this tree goes back to 1998. Um, and it's remarkable for several reasons. Um, one of them is that it's now more right than it was then. So in 1998, when he put this forward, I think most people must have thought he was bonkers. Look down here. We have two separate origins from a hydrothermal vent. These are the bacteria and the archaea. Um, I, I haven't really gone into the details of that. When I first heard him say that in 2002, I thought he was completely bonkers. Uh, I now think he was, he was absolutely right. Uh, I, I haven't really had time to go into why they would... So they share a common ancestor, but down inside the vents. The other thing which is really clear on here is he has a, a kind of genomic merger going on. Um, so genes from the archaea and genes from the bacteria are fusing together here to form the eukaryotes. And this is a singular endosymbiosis. This one is the chloroplasts. So this is not really the same as Lynn Margulis, who had lots of these things going on in all kinds of different cell lines. This was a singular event that gave rise to eukaryotic cells. Uh, and later on, the acquisition of chloroplasts gave rise to plants, but it didn't change anything really about the big structure of eukaryotic evolution. Plants are the same type of cells that we have, except with chloroplasts added in and a vacuole. But, you know, we're basically the same. So Bill has this singular origin of complex life. Now, a lot of people really hate this idea. Um, and, and I think it's in part because we don't really like the idea of freak accidents in science. It kind of almost puts itself beyond science. You can't study statistically an accident, a, a singularity. Or something, but you can think about it in a very productive way. If this was the origin of the eukaryotic cell, then it started something like this. This is the only example that we know of of bacteria living inside another bacterial cell. So there's plenty of bacteria living inside our own type of cell, eukaryotic cells, but it's really rare for bacteria to be inside another bacterial cell. This is not a phagocyte. It didn't engulf uh, the cell to get in there. It's got a cell wall around it. It's actually a cyanobacterium, and you can see the, the photosynthetic membranes here. So we don't know what they're doing there. This actually is an old discovery. This is from 1979, um, when they were still called blue-green algae in those days. And blue-green algae really refers to eukaryotes, so everybody ignored that paper for 20 years um, until it turned out they were actually bacteria with bacteria inside. And so this speaks more about uh, the, the whole sweep of evolution. Why would that make a difference? Well, the cells that are living inside, uh, they are bacteria. They are cells. They've got their own agenda. They want to grow. They want to divide. They want to... There was a lovely quote from... Um, from uh, uh, was it Jacques Monod, who, who said that the dream of every cell is to become two cells. <laughs> and, and so that's what these guys are dreaming about in here. They're thinking, how am I going to double? And the way that they do it, if you imagine a population of bacteria, and they're all growing frantically, um, and the speed at which they grow depends on the speed at which they can copy their genome as much as anything else. And so the smaller the genome is, the faster they can grow. And cells that, are, you know, if, they, if, if there's something about the environment that means they don't need this gene now, it's not useful, and they lose it, they delete it, um, then they can probably grow a little bit faster because their genome is just a little bit smaller. And over a couple of days, bacteria, their growth rate does depend on that kind of factor. But then the environment changes again, and, and, and whatever it was that that gene did, you need it again now. And so they, they pick it up. What bacteria do is they pick up genes by what's called lateral gene transfer. It's like passing loose change around. Uh, they acquire it again, and before you know it, you're back where you were. But if you've got a same population of bacteria living inside another cell, they do the same thing. They throw away genes that they don't need. Imagine that those genes are for making a cell wall and you're living inside another cell. And, you know, you don't need a cell wall for protection inside another cell or for 
prevent yourself exploding with the, with the difference in pressure between the outside and inside. So you lose those genes, you grow a little bit faster, you come to dominate the population. But so long as the cell doesn't die that you're living in, you'll be all right. You never need those genes again. And so there's a tendency for bacterial parasites to lose genes and to become simpler. And not just, not just bacterial parasites, we see the same thing with Giardia and so on. And a very nice example is, uh, is Rickettsia, uh, which a few years ago people thought were, was very closely related to mitochondria. It's probably not so closely related. But it's still a beautiful example. It was the cause of that wiped out the armies of Napoleon on his retreat from Moscow. Um, and it's, it's spread um, by these ticks. Um, and it's a bacterium. Here it is invading a, a, a large eukaryotic cell. I think it's actually a kidney cell. Um, and the one thing about it which, which stands out is it's got a tiny genome. It's around about one megabase genome. And that's true for all of these things. I'm not just um, hand-waving here. This is the, um, the, the range of genome sizes of free-living bacteria. It goes up to around about 12 megabases now. Uh, this guy, T. Ryan Gregory, did a lot of work on genome sizes. And down at this other end, um, these are the the parasites and the endosymbionts and uh, obligate symbionts, they're pretty much down at less than one megabase of DNA. So just for comparison's sake, we have 3,000 megabases of DNA. The largest bacterial genome is 12 megabases of DNA. And some large algae, like Eudlina, are uh, you know, up to 100,000 megabases of DNA. So we have you know, quite constrained genomes in comparison with some single cell. The largest one is a, is a thing called Amoeba W, uh, which I, I, it was miscounted. It was originally 670,000 megabases. It's come down to 150,000, last count. Um, but still, you know, it's, it's very, very substantially bigger than our own genome. But what happens with these bacteria that live in other cells? They lose genes. They become simpler. They whittle away. And that's what ended up with the mitochondria. All these mitochondria that we have in millions of billions of copies, um, they all have genomes of their own, and they're passed on down the maternal line from mother to daughter, uh, mother to son, but you know, my, my kids don't have my mitochondria, they have my wife's mitochondria. It's a very strange arrangement that uh, I won't go into now. What it means is that if you want to be bigger, more complex, and spend more energy, it's not just a case of having a larger surface area. You've got a whole unit here. That unit has some genes which in some way control respiration. It's got the protein building factories, the ribosomes. It's a, it's, a, it's a unit. And if you want to expand, you just make more units. You have more mitochondria. But it's not just that you're increasing the surface area. You're, you've got genomes with each one. And that allows you to expand up on a massive scale. And the person who's, I think, done more on this side, again, going back to, to the early 1990s, John Allen has been arguing that they require genes to control respiration. And you know, still, I would say, the majority of the field is not persuaded that he's correct. He is correct, I'm sure of that. But um, you know, it takes an awful long time in science for, for sometimes the simplest ideas to catch on. Most people just don't really care very much, I'm afraid. But it's the, it's the difference that they can, to become a very large cell, you just scale up mitochondria. So this is a giant bacterium, and there are a few around. And these little white dots here are the copies of the complete genome. So the giant bacteria that do exist, it seems that they also need genes to control respiration. And this, this is the edge of the cell, and this is the, the plasma membrane where respiration is taking place. And they have as many as 200,000 copies of the complete genome. And each genome is a normal-sized bacterial genome with three megabases of DNA in it. And this is a eukaryotic cell. The blue is the nucleus, where the, it's the main gene depot. And all these little um, the, the, the green spots here are the uh, mitochondrial DNA. Um, so there are hundreds or thousands of copies of mitochondrial DNA. So the difference between these two cells is not that this cell has an awful lot more DNA than that cell. They actually have a similar amount. It's that, in that case, it's got a kind of genomic symmetry. There's thousands of copies of the same genome, exactly the same genome. Whereas here, we've got one massive nuclear genome, which is supported energetically by this kind of endpoint 
thousands of mitochondrial genomes which have whittled down and become smaller and smaller and more and more streamlined. So all the mitochondria, effectively, is, it gives us multibacterial power without the bacterial overheads. And that's what allows all those overheads can go into supporting a massive <coughs> nucleus with full of genes. It's, at least it's the raw material for natural selection to operate on. And so we have a kind of genomic asymmetry. And to me, that's the real difference between bacteria and large complex cells. It's we've got two genomes. There isn't such a thing as the human genome. There are human genomes, the mitochondrial genome and the nuclear genome. This is the last slide. Um, why, then, is complex life so rare? Why did it only happen once on Earth? And would it only happen rarely elsewhere in the universe? There's a double, there's a double bottleneck here. Uh, one of them we have to get bacterium into another bacterial type cell to break down this issue with, with membranes and scaling. So you've got to have cells within cells to be able to scale up. Um, but those cells have their own agenda. You have what's called conflict, uh, levels of selection conflict, that the bacteria inside want to grow fast and perhaps make their host cell fuse with other cells or whatever they want to do. The host cell itself wants to keep them under control and bleed off the energy, but they don't want them replicating at any old speed. Chances of it going wrong is really high. And maybe this is why we don't see any surviving intermediates. Maybe they all died because it was a pretty dodgy situation for a, a long period of time, or even a short period of time. It's just that this is a long evolutionary distance. And regardless of whether what I'm telling you is right or not, this long evolutionary distance, there are no evolutionary intermediates that have ever been found. And so all of this complexity in this type of cell, and I would like to leave you with this thought, we have no idea yet, at least the difference between ideas and serious scientific knowledge where we can say that there have been experiments done and, 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 and real data, how any of this complexity of eukaryotic cells arose. And if we want to understand medicine and what goes wrong in our own bodies, and we don't understand the why these parts arose in the first place? What were the evolutionary driving forces that made them evolve? Uh, how can we really understand ourselves and, and, and medicine? And if this starts out with mitochondria in a very simple cell with none of that complexity, the nice thing from my point of view is that perhaps all of this complexity arose, and the reason that we share such similar cells with, with plants and with algae is not that we were all adapting to different external environments, but we all were adapting to the same internal environment, the problem of having cells living inside us. And it's that that drove all of this complexity. And once it became a stable system, then eukaryotes could spread out and take over the rest of the world. And with that, uh, I'd like to say thank you very much. This work has been done by many people, uh, and it's great fun having a lab with so many bright young people coming through it. It's an inspiration for me. Thank you very much.